Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, folks. It is the 22nd of December, and while this is technically the 199th episode, I'm just going to break convention and say it's the honorary 200th. We do numbers. Uh, because... Well, I mean, it's probably going to be in the show title, so it's not a huge surprise to anyone out there, but this is going to be the last Young IPA podcast. That's right. Uh, we got, uh, you know, it's, it was never going to last forever. It's mm. been an awesome four years, and we've got a whole bunch of plant stuff planned out next year, so we're not going anywhere, but I mean, part of the thing when you whack the word young in front of the <laughs> podcast name, uh, you do sort of set yourself a time limit, so, mm. uh, you know, you, we'll get into our feelings at the end there, but we thought up top we should let you know last show, and that's... That's what's happening. That's exactly right. Just one too many scandals for the for the chumps in legal, and uh, <laughs> unfortunately had to fall on our swords. And yeah, no, you are right about the young IPA podcast. We really made a rod for our own back there. I feel a bit like Tom Tilly at Hack. You know, I really yeah. empathise with that guy. Yeah, yeah. Who had to leave because he got too old for Hack. Yes, but there is going to be some stuff that we got planned out next year. So we're not going anywhere. So don't worry about that. It's just going to be you know this particular podcast is going to be no more. So we're going to go out with a bang because this is going to oh, be yeah. a fun show. And there's going to be a lot of opinions because the big news this week mm. is this New South Wales outbreak, which has everyone, well, it has seven people in the country losing their minds. And that yep. is the premiers of uh, states that are not New South Wales. I might've got my numbers wrong on how many people <laughs> that is, but the point is yeah. New South Wales had this outbreak and on 30 cases on Sunday, people started to panic. That is when border decisions were starting to be made. 15 people yesterday. That's when Western Australia does their hard border again with the entirety of New South Wales, even though the outbreak was basically just located in that northern beaches suburb. Victoria has warnings about northern beaches. Queensland has warnings about Victorian, uh, northern beaches. Everyone, uh, borders are cancelled, plans are thrown into disarray. I mean, I know so many people who have had to either cancel holidays or completely mm, rearrange schedules. Yeah. It's chaos, and then today there's eight cases. Now, I'm not saying it's the end of it because you know, it's coronavirus, anything could happen, mm. but uh, it does seem... I mean, I am pretty confident in saying that the premiers went a bit early on this one. Well, it's our last show, James, so we're not going to be held accountable <laughs> for any outlandish claims. No, I mean, I, I, as I said uh, to you earlier, James, I'm happy that the number of cases has gone from 15 to 8 because it confirms my worldview. I mean, sorry, because COVID is bad. <laughs> yes. And no, it looked just good on Gladys for, for sticking to her guns. We saw Dan Andrews tweet a few, couple of days ago, uh, he's closing the border with New South Wales because the... He's not confident that the measures being taken by the New South Wales government are strong enough. So, like, people in Sydney, you would be in lockdown for six weeks if yeah. that guy was in charge of your six state. Six weeks. 112 days. Try that one. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it just, like, it would have been bang straight away. So, God bless Gladys Berejiklian. Dan Andrews copped a lot of flack for that comment. Mm. But if anyone knows uh, an inability to deal with an outbreak, it is Dan Andrews. So I kind of see why he thinks this is my area to weigh in because the man is well-versed in being able to see things that are not going well with how to handle COVID-19. Yeah, He's no, got a lot of experience in the field. That's exactly right. I, was all, I, I unfortunately couldn't use my tweet again. Why don't you just sit, one, sit this one out, big guy? Because I've already used that. Um, but that's all right. And people do keep a ledger of these people, things. The seven people that liked that tweet might have two months ago liked it again um no but look when new south wales remains the gold standard now as you did mention rightly so things can go wrong and they can go wrong very quickly but uh new south wales have had eighty nine thousand arrivals in quarantine and the next highest is in the twenty thousands and melbourne only had twenty one thousand yeah uh, or victoria only had twenty one thousand and i liked gladys's sort of very terse kind of uh passive aggressive uh point where she made that new south wales didn't close the border with victoria until we we're up to 140 daily cases whereas victoria's already closed the border so um, once again, God, God bless Gladys Berejiklian. And we talked to David Limbrick, who was our hero of the year, later on. Gladys Berejiklian was on in the conversation. Yes. She was in the conversation. We do. Uh, yeah. So, uh, 
here's the thing, Pete. We've talked a lot on the show about how to handle COVID-19 <laughs> and lockdown strategy and stuff. Now, Gladys Berejiklian seems to have, at this stage, suppressed this, like, quote-unquote second wave, but, mm. you know, it's 40 to 8 in two days. Uh, or 30 to 8 in two days. Yep. Uh, no masks. No mandatory masks. Yeah. No mandatory lockdown of an entire city or state or whatever. No uh, closures of cafes all over the city and stuff. Hmm. Something yeah, yeah, hmm. funny that. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm paranoid because we know how Gladys handles it. And as you just pointed out, you know, no masks, well, no mandatory masks are seem to be effective so far. The concern is that there's 90,000 Sydney siders in Melbourne and, you know, maybe there'll be a couple of cases here and all of a sudden, bang, we're back. So. Yeah, well, there is that story of the teenager that's breaking now. Um, so that'll be interesting. But I want to talk about borders in general because yeah. we can talk about the outbreak, but borders is what's really... Uh, affecting people and really throwing a lot of plans into disarray. And I mean, if you, if you have travel booked in at some point next year, like uh, on what level are you confident that that's going to happen? If this yeah. is the reaction that can happen on uh, what is at the moment a minor outbreak. Uh, and the one, the angle I want to take here, uh, have I ever sent you that click hole article? It's like the worst person you know just made a really good point. Yes, I have seen that. That's fantastic. The phrase like, where is Scotty, was trending over the weekend. And it was just like, you know, your blue drip check marks or whatever it is, yeah. just going, criticizing Scott Morrison. But they, they, they're right. Where is he? Like, you've said all year, I well, not all year, but like the last couple of months, borders will be open by Christmas. Scott Morrison's big thing. Mm. And people booked in travel because they go, okay, borders are open by Christmas. Everyone's agreed to that. Borders are not going to be open by Christmas. Yeah. So, like, you know, he had the press conference yesterday and he spent most of the time that I was watching it talking about vaccines and not about the fact that, like, you, literally the thing you've been saying for two months is not going to happen. Mm, no, that's a fair point. We, we mentioned during our lockdown how we thought we wouldn't have minded a bit more of, uh, what's the word, but more of volume from the Prime Minister. Yeah. And I think you're right about that. I think, you know, the absolute human misery that's unnecessary that's being caused by these extreme reactions to a very small outbreak so far yeah. is, uh, is ridiculous. And I said this last time, and I'm going to say it again, this isn't the last time this is going to happen. Yeah. Even at the best uh, forecast, we're all going to get vaccinated by... End of next year, I would yeah. say. The vaccine's like made its way through the Australian community. Yeah. So literally until then, this is the rule. Like once you have 15 cases, borders are closed. Like that's just where we're at. Mate, that bloke sitting at the top of Spring Street, at the top of Collins Street, is just sitting there with his finger on the trigger. He'd love to do it again. That just is been... Daniel Andrews for people that are not <laughs> Melbournians. That's the reference to you Daniel know Andrews. You talking about. And not just uh, some businessman. The other part of uh, this I want to take is this one quote by our old mate and one of the <laughs> heroes for, well, one of the people in the conversation for Villain of the Year, Mark McGowan. Uh, yeah, again, Mark McGowan, I don't recall him having a go at Dan Andrews at any point during Melbourne stage four restrictions about how he was handling it. But, uh, you know, a couple of cases pop up in New South Wales and he feels the need, I'm, you know, I want to get our head on this one and just make sure I'm getting in the press. He says, uh, this cl growing cluster is, quote, causing grief all over Australia. They need to kill the virus in Sydney, New South Wales. And here's the best part. They seem to be engaging in a sort of form of whack-a-mole. They may be trying to step on a gym here or a restaurant there. As if, like... Any case, it's got to lock down the state. Like, no whack-a-mole. Like, get rid of all the moles. Turn off the machine. Uh, I think, isn't it the whack-a-mole strategy the good oh. one? Like, that is the what an outbreak comes up, we deal with it. Another outbreak comes up, we deal with it. We don't, like, throw out the machine. I didn't know what you were saying for a few times there, but then I eventually got it. Whack-a-mole. Whack-a-mole. That, that is the official name of Gladys Berejiklian's strategy is the, you know, plan whack-a-mole. And it's the good one. It's yeah. the one that causes the least suffering. You see outbreak, you deal with that. You don't destroy a machine. Yeah, and his state, like, I mean, they lock down and they don't have any cases. Good on you. But they, 
when they had a, they had to do a whole bunch of testing the other day, it was a complete debacle. They took, they told people to go to testing at four forty seven or whatever it was, and they closed at six o'clock. You could see all the Western Australians on Twitter teeing off. So mm. yeah, get your hand off it, mate. <laughs> yeah, I mean a lot <laughs> of this is just like well. That is loud. All right, they've been construction all this morning. They've been told to not do this out of respect for the greatest podcast in the world's <laughs> final episode. But apparently, there's not a lot of respect on the level above us. So, if that keeps up, we'll deal with it. But for the moment, it seems to have stopped. All right, going to keep going. Okay. I, uh, I mean, what they are, virg- what they're signalling there is they have absolutely no faith in their own contact tracing teams yeah. to be able to suppress anything. So, yeah. literally, just have a go at New South Wales and just pray that their contact tracing team fails. But. They're not going to because they're world standard. It could be some random pizza box that's infectious. Exactly. Uh, Another story we got. So Hotel Quarantine Inquiry comes out. This was something very near and dear to Victorians' minds and, you know, all of Australians because that was, uh, you know, 800 deaths, 112 days of suffering, uh, all linked back to the the failures of the Victorian government's hotel quarantine program. We had the big Coates Inquiry into what happened. We saw heads roll. Jenny McCarco stepped down. Chris Eccles stepped down. And... The report finally came out today, and there were so yesterday. many... Uh, sorry, yesterday. Uh, when I wrote my notes, it was today. So in my head, still correct. I'll but, give it to you, because it's the last episode. So here's the thing. Uh, nothing in there. And I guess like I, I was always kind of primed that there wasn't going to be anything in there, because when the report gets delayed to literally a couple of days before Christmas, uh, big sign that they're just like, you know what, well, we, we don't want to make a big song dance about this. Mm. And then the, it, it was supposed to go online at 10 o'clock, but then it got moved to 11. <laughs> All right, I would like some bit of respect for this last episode. Then it got delayed from 10 o'clock till 11 o'clock, so it was up against the New South Wales uh, coronavirus update. So clearly, like, everyone's trying to, you know, there was a deal of, like, this isn't going to be a big report, and it wasn't. And it's such a shame because 800 people died as a result of the failures of hotel quarantine, Mm. and they don't get the answers as to who was it that decided to use private security over ADF forces. Yeah, it was always going to be a whitewash. They... This thing was only invented so Daniel Andrews could not answer the question in the in the press conferences every day and say, we're going to let the inquiry deal with it. And then it only got extended. It was meant to hand out its report ages ago, but Peter Crendlin asked questions that it should have asked, and in about five minutes it got extended. Um, and you could see Peter Crendlin's piece in Herald Sun today, if you haven't read it, check it out. It just points out all these crazy things about the inquiry. They never spoke to the guy who ran the security firm. Like, what would he have to know? What would he have to say about... Who hired him? Well, yeah. He wouldn't have anything information to give on that. Yeah, why did you get a multi-million dollar project in six hours? Exactly right. And he was available and he offered to, and Jenny McCarkos offered to uh, come back and tell more to the inquiry and they didn't let her in. Uh, the inquiry said the decision to use private security was made at 4.30 on the date whenever it was made um, when Dan Andrews, an hour before that, announced it to the general public. So there's all these holes in it and, and there's more in that piece by uh, Peter Credlin if you want to check it out. There's a, there's a whole range of unanswered questions that uh, we didn't get the answer to. But even if it's not, even if there's no smoking gun, even if it really just is incompetence, which it may well be, um, uh there is a broader lie here, and the broader lie is that they said every decision was going to be based on medical science, and it wasn't. The most important decision of all, apparently no one made. Yeah, so, exactly. So every day when he said every, – every single day when he said everything we're doing is based on medicine, that was a lie. Mm. Well, yeah, there we, it's true. All right, the one thing I would say for people that are still a little bit hopeful and still want some damn answers to this because who doesn't mm. – Jenny McCarkos's statement last oh, yeah. night was spicy. Oh, I like Jenny. Yeah. It was uh, the Christmas present we were all hoping for. She put out a media release. Most of it was dull, ended with a bang. Yeah. 
<laughs> Furthermore, I am disappointed the inquiry decided to redact some phone records, including the Premier's calls in their entirety, and to subject those to a non-publication order. In the interest of public transparency, all telephone call records provided relating to 27 March 2020 should be publicly released. Mm. I wonder what's in there that she knows, but... I don't know, but yeah. like that's spicy. That, that is a hundred percent spice. Another clear, you know, uh, shortcoming of the inquiry. My, my thing that I liked about that statement, James, is that as you know, we've charted the the fall, no, the rise and the fall and the rise again of Jenny McCarkos. That, that word, that statement was in the most basic word formatting you could ever hope to imagine. Ariel Eleven Word Two Thousand and Seven mm-hmm. just said media statement, the date. Uh, and I really I, I liked it. Yeah, well, it was definitely from the desk of Jenny McCarkos, I yeah. would say. I don't think it went through the official Labor Party uh, no. spreadsheet the like home a word style processor. guide. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, you saw an article, Pete, that you wanted to talk about. Um, I did. I just wanted to make one more quick point about quarantine. Once again, it's sort of you know this is the last show, so you got to get your you know your wax in where yep. you can. Um, the police, you know, it became pretty apparent that the preference of the police was to not be involved in hotel quarantine, and the police had been horrendous in Victoria throughout this year and this is another example and people should realise that it was the leadership of the police that had a preference to not be involved in this um, for all the faults of the government as well so I just wanted to get that in. Now James, as you just alluded to, new segment, final show, new segment Fireside Chat with your Uncle Rooseal this is where I raise something for you listeners that you should know about now. Australians together by, uh, released a report by Mark McCrindle and Mainstream Insights. So I completely stuffed that up. What I meant to say was a report called Australians Together. The segment's not had a great start. <laughs> it's it's one and only one and only go, and I'm stuffing it up so far. Australians Together is the report, and it's by Mark McCrindle and Mainstream Insights. It is about the extent to which Australians self-censor. Sixty-five percent of Australians self-censor. Seventy-seven um, percent of Australians under twenty-five say they self-censor because of cancel culture, and seventy-nine percent said they had struggled to be their true self. Um, so that. Is those numbers are pretty high, three in five Australians, and seventy-seven percent of Australians under twenty-five. Now, to an extent, James, we, you know, you know, there's always been social pressure on people to not say certain things, and there's always been people have always self-censored. It's just that it's gone into hyperdrive recently. Um, but what I would say to young listeners out there, from your old Uncle Roof Seal, is that you should just say what you think. Because if there's a group of people and everyone seems to be talking about how great Dan Andrews is or how bad, you know, unconscious bias is or whatever it is, if you say what you think, I guarantee someone will agree with you, Mm. someone in that group, or at least partly agree with you. And if they don't and it backfires, just see the IPA legal team. No, just kidding. They Trust me, someone will agree with you. So just say what you think and you'll feel better. That is a very time-efficient Jordan Peterson lecture. Could have done with some crying, yeah. uh, but it's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm crying on the inside. Okay, so. good. Uh, uh, let us go to... So like we said, David Limbrick's the hero of the year for standing up for freedom, uh, mainly what, here in Victoria. What a legend. Uh, fantastic guy. Good interview. So mm. looking forward to that. Want to hit with... We'll start off with villains of the year then, yeah. which is... Uh, well, obviously, the, the the worst people of the year. The absolute, <laughs> the dregs. The dregs of the freedom movement yeah. this year. And, Pete, I think we should lead off with yours because yours is numero uno. Oh, well, firstly, roll the tape, Muskie. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. Extinction Rebellion fake nudie run villain of the year. I am not going to miss this clip. So, well, yeah, this is James. Finally... I am so glad to be rid of it. So that was obviously the fake nudie run Extinction Rebellion did and villain of the Never year. Never expresses that they don't... Anyway... <laughs> James, my villain of the year. Okay, so I've already spoken to him about a bit and I mentioned it in the interview with David Libby, which is coming up, which you wouldn't have heard yet. But um, that is Dan Andrews. 
Now, David Limbrick is Hero of the Year, and I actually asked him about Dan Andrews because I thought, you know, this guy's really even-handed. What does he think? And he said, you know, he's just doing what he thinks is best. It's, he's done it in a horrendous way, but he still thinks he's doing what is best. And I sort of partly agree with that. I believe that Dan Andrews thinks that the power of the state can be weaponized to do whatever it is that he decides is the most important thing to do. He probably thinks that. But also, what is the most important thing to do in Dan Andrews' eyes is completely interrelated to what benefits Dan Andrews politically. Now, we know politicians are like that. But in this year, it really mattered because when there's a pandemic and when there's the economic carnage that's going on, we can see what that means. And I have always been a fan of liberalism because it made the most sense to me. You know, this is clearly the best way to run things. Like, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Liberal countries are better than other countries or more successful. But this year, I think we all found out what it was like to lose that. So this year, I found out what I understand. I understand what liberalism now because I've lost it for a short period of time. So, uh, yeah. Dan Andrews is my villain of the year, even though I guess he taught me a good lesson of what it's like to lose liberalism. Um, and I think that the thing that hurt the most about Dan Andrews, you know, I can accept that COVID is a difficult thing to deal with and, you know, mistakes happen and, you know, it's a highly infectious disease and it's going to break out and things like that. But I couldn't cop him blaming us. That was the bit where I went, you know what, you are pretty bad. Mm. Uh, we're going to go door to door if we have to. Everyone knows someone who's broken the rules and it's like, nah, mate, you stuffed up. Mm. So... Dan Andrews, villain of the year. Very good. Uh, all right, so my one, shout out to Jeanette Young, by the way, honourable mention to Jeanette Young, Chief Health Officer Where in Queensland, uh, for saying closing schools was literally a shock and awe tactic. It wasn't guided <laughs> by health advice. It was just to make people think this is a real thing. Yeah. Close the schools. Yeah. Shock and awe. Anyway, good honourable mention. Good honourable mention. Uh, but I've got to give it to number one, which is the most cringeworthy comment <laughs> I've ever heard. Like, seriously, uh, I'll, I'll save my analysis to the end, but I'll let me cast your mind back to Deputy Chief Me Medical Officer for the country, Nick Coatsworth. Mm. Uh, asked about stage four, a lot of people upset, a lot of people sad, a lot of people lost their jobs, a lot of people feeling hopeless, isolated, uh, completely alone. And he thought, all right, you know what? I, I, should, I should help out here. I should, yeah. I should put off my medical hat for a second and put my self-help guru hat on. Here's a quote. Set yourself achievable goals. One of the simplest things you can do in the morning, and this was said to me once at a leadership seminar, so you know it's good, by someone who was a very good leader, is make your bed. It sounds so simple, but if you get into some structure and routine for the next two weeks while the stage four restrictions are in place in Metro Melbourne, please do not interrupt the fill of the year. <laughs> Uh, and the surrounds, those sorts of achievable goals and structure can be very important to keep you on track. Marie Antoinette has had 200 years of infamy for far less than that, yeah. all right? Make your bed for the, like, okay, this next four weeks or 112 days as it turned out. Mm. What do I do for the other, like, 23 hours and 58 minutes of the day after mm. my dune is looking good? Yeah. Seriously. What do I do? You know, the, the measures that you've brought in have cost me my job. but you know. oh, My bed's looking great. Yeah, my fantastic. bed is looking great. My kid can't go to school. My wife can't see her friends. My business isn't shuttered. But if you have a look at our bed, you will see immaculate kept uh, up bed. I reckon he's just seen Jordan Peterson. He's like, this will work. Yeah. I, I mean, seriously, like anything to talk about the divides between people that were able to sail through lockdowns because mm. they kept their job and were able to still do things and people that actually suffered. Like, oh, if you just make your bed, you'll be fine. I reckon that's a good one because you can go, you know, uh, it's sometimes it's the little things. It's like the apology, wasn't it? You know, Dan, mm. and, no, not the apology, Dan Andrews blaming us was the thing that got us the most. And that is another good example of that. Now, I've got a few honourable mentions, James, okay. if you'd like to throw in. Uh, Xi Jinping. All right. So, Pretty good one, actually. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think we, as bad as the Coast Worth quote was, he yeah. hasn't imprisoned a, a million Uyghur Muslims. Yeah. And also just COVID, like it came from China, you know. Mm. Uh, not that that's necessarily China's fault, but it, the fact they didn't tell people about it is their fault. And I read somewhere that 
and I'm not 100% sure this is true. So oh, check just it, say it on the podcast. Check it, kids. Just say it in media. That if they had told everyone everything they knew as soon as they knew it, there would be 95% fewer cases. Mm. So think about that when you can't sleep at night. Uh, ethics professor who said old people shouldn't get the vaccine because old people are generally whiter. Vic Pol, as I mentioned before, and celebrity singing Imagine. Mm. Oh, yeah, Gal Gadot. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it was like Imagine. three days of joy. <laughs> of, yeah, of, yeah, yeah, just like all the jokes we got out. Gal Gadot's content. Yeah, it's just... It, she served a higher purpose. It was cringe, but it served a higher purpose. Yeah. All right. Uh, cool. Those are the villains of the year. Let's go talk to uh, the hero of the year. James, just before we do okay. hero of the year, can I give you my honourable mentions for that? Oh, okay. Yep. Or should Absolutely. we do that after? Uh, no, I think we should do it now because uh, these are the honourable mentions will lead up to the main event. Well, the thing that's going to surprise you... Is that you didn't write them down? At all. Is that I can't find them. Well, I mean, if there was any beautiful way to send off this podcast... It Hit is up. randomly scrambling him. through notes <laughs> and iPad for him. They're actually exactly where they should be. They're under Hero of the Year. So why did you start looking there? I don't there? know. I haven't got a... Well, I've been at home. This is the first one in the studio for ages and I've got pieces of paper. Anyway, honourable mentions, James. Scientists working on COVID, not just the ones working on the vaccine, but also the people improving the clinical work. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, if I do so, so myself. Uh, Rachel Baxendale on the press pack at the Andrews press conferences. Activists in places like Hong Kong, Belarus and the Uyghur activists... Uh, and I've, as I mentioned before, Gladys, very clean. Very cool. Let's go to David Limbrick. Okay, we now welcome back onto the show uh, our hero of the year mm. for freedom. I think Pete is going to do the honours of giving the award. Ooh. That's exactly right, David. Now, as you know, we pick a hero every week. The Grunt the Pig Freedom Award for this year. We put our heads together. Normally, we choose one each and then kind of... Uh, get the pig to decide, but this year there was one unanimous victory, yeah. and Grunt wasn't available, so we it's, had to hard, it's hard in the days of COVID to get back to that pig, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> That's right. So what we decided to do was give you one of our give you give you a special prize for Hero of the Year. There you go, David. Wow, thank you so much. Uh, I'm so honoured. Should I open it now? Yes. Yeah, open it now. It's oh, wow. box, and that is a mug with both of our animated faces on it, which is the highest. Wow, that I can personally bestow on anyone. That's awesome. Yeah, Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cool. And the reason we gave it to you was because it has been such a dark year for liberty and human rights in Victoria. And there just seemed to be only one voice in Victorian Parliament that was consistently making the case for uh, the government to not be as terrible on human rights as they were. And that was yours. And Pete uh, really wanted to play this clip from. Your speech. That's exactly right. So this is the speech you made when the government's emergency powers were extended and it resonated throughout Victoria and it resonated throughout Australia. And also for me, I remember just watching it <laughs> in my room, on my computer, and like my heart was beating. I'm like, this is exactly it. So roll the tape, mate. And anyone who wants to talk about a range of alternatives to the pandemic is accused of wanting to let it rip. We are smeared as conspiracy theorists and morally re reprehensible extremists. Well, I've got some bad news for you. When police and protective services officers can enter homes without warrants, when people who lost their jobs are fined thousands of dollars, when people need permits just to go to work, and ministers have power to suspend Act of Parliament, it's not us who are the extremists. Now, what was the reaction you got to that speech? Because that one went viral, com like completely viral, within a couple of days. Yeah, it was... Um, I didn't expect such a huge reaction, you know, Obviously, I was really upset about the state of emergency extension, as you can tell in the speech. But I posted it up, as I post a lot of my speeches up, and it just went nuts. Like, I think on my page, it got viewed like 300,000 times or something, which is just, you know, orders of magnitude more than I normally get. Plus, other people were posting it all around the place. I've got no idea in total how many people saw it. But yeah, it was by far the most widely viewed speech I've ever done. 
Um, and I just got thousands of contacts, people contacting me and saying, you know, thank you for saying it. Um, and it was nearly all positive uh, contacts. So, I mean, you know, I, we, we spent weeks after that and some of those emails I still haven't got back to. So apologies to anyone listening who contacted me and I didn't respond. I just, it was just not possible to respond to every single contact. But, you know, there weren't, you know, typically you get like form letters and stuff coming to politicians. These were individuals telling their stories and some of it was really distressing stuff mm. as well like you know I didn't speak about some of the stories that I got before this that you know I was trying to talk about people's stories because I thought you know there's no point talking about you know theories of freedoms you know we can talk about real consequences of people losing their freedoms and um, you know I think that resonated and a lot of the people a lot of people started sharing their stories with me after that and um, yeah I mean as I said in the speech I think I had to at one stage, I had to instruct my staff to just turn off the phones and go to message for a while because it's just so distressing, like hearing all these stories of people's lives and, and the way they've been affected. So, yeah, it, it was a really positive response, but um, it was uh, awful as well hearing the pain that's out there. I mean, it's real pain. This is real people's lives. So for those who want to see that, it's only seven or eight minutes and it's really good. We can only play a little bit of it, but just Google David Limbrick's speech and it comes up, I think, but you'll find it. Uh, it's on his Facebook <laughs> and Twitter page. I'm sure you'll find it. So what was his summary? What, if you could give us the summary of that speech and the summary of your view of the government's handling of COVID and what happened, because I know a few people would have heard it before, but some people wouldn't have. So what do you think happened and what do you think should have happened? And give us yeah, so, so when the state of emergency was first declared, um, Parliament can't stop it. So we said initially that um, we weren't going to interfere with what the government was trying to do, but we'll be watching it very closely the way that they use the emergency powers. You know, anyone that knows anything about the history of emergency powers knows that there's something to be worried about and you need to watch it very closely. And so one of the things that's really important that I've been talking about a lot, and it says this in the, in the legislation, in the Public Health and Wellbeing Act, that um, any directions or responses to control the pandemic or control any sort of emergency situation, they need to be um, based on evidence or, or using the precautionary principle. They also need to be proportionate responses and they also need to be uh, the least restrictive of human rights as per the Victorian Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities. And what I came to the conclusion of uh, after watching how the government was responding to the pandemic and leaning on the emergency powers the whole time, I came to the conclusion that I wasn't satisfied that they were taking proportionate responses and I wasn't satisfied that they were taking the responses that were the least restrictive of human rights. And therefore, I withdrew my support for the state of emergency and opposed extending it. Um, you know, I felt that if there were specific things that they needed laws for, they could have legislated or done something specific, but instead they've just lent on the emergency powers the entire time. Everything's been mandatory. They haven't tried to you know, educate and get uh, voluntary compliance and good information out there. They've just said, right, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, or you're going to get a fine. And um, we thought that that's not an acceptable way to use the emergency powers. You brought up before that it was story after story of suffering. Now, I know this particular one came before the <coughs> state of emergency, but the idea that... Um uh, yeah, for people outside of Victoria that might not have seen it, but at the start of the outbreak that led to stage four, 
the virus was very prevalent in some public housing towers. Yeah. And the government took the decision that they were basically going to lock the doors of these towers. You were only allowed out to get the food that they dropped off. And these are some of the most vulnerable people in Victoria. And, I mean, well, this week we've had the Ombudsman report come out, which pretty took a very dim view of what the government decided to do there. And I know this is an issue that speaks very closely to you. Yeah, I mean, the I, I, I was... Um very happy to read the Ombudsman's report. I'd said previously that I felt like our Victorian institutions had failed in their um, mission to, you know, our institutions that are meant to be set up to protect human rights had failed. And then I had to withdraw that when the Ombudsman's report came out because I feel like the Ombudsman did a fantastic job. She outlined very clearly in her view and, and the view of the investigation that um, the response wasn't the least restrictive of rights as I had been talking about. But I really feel like, you know, what she's clearly identified in that report is really just the tip of the iceberg here with regards to the actions that the government's taken and their impact on human rights. And so what I called for only a few days before that report uh, came out, I actually want to see some sort of human rights audit so that we can see here are all the directions and what are the impacts on human rights from those directions so that anyone can assess it. Because one of the things that made me very unconvinced that the government is actually taking the right sort of course of actions is that they haven't released the uh, human rights charter assessments and they haven't released the evidence that they use to make the directions. And I feel if they had confidence in the science and they had confidence in their proportionality on human rights then they would have every confidence to release that into the public for scrutiny and they haven't done it they still haven't done it so yeah I, I feel like the Ombudsman did a fantastic job um, but there's a lot more uh, things that need to be looked at I think that's exactly why that's what I've been mean. the whole way through I've been like can you guys like just show you working like see exactly mm. what you think the benefits of these are and what the costs of each measure is um, hopefully in the fullness of time all that will come out now uh, Speaking of that human rights orders that you've called for, what do you think, what in your mind was the darkest or the, or the worst uh, or the low light in terms of human rights throughout the year? What was the worst moment for you? Oh, there's so many to choose from. Um, <laughs> there are a few. Look, I think the housing tower lockdown okay, was yeah. most the most horrific thing that we've seen. Yep. Um, you know, the idea of, you know, a lot of the people in the housing tower were... Uh, you know, they escaped authoritarian regimes. A lot of these people were refugees. And in fact, that was one of the things that I noticed in the people that were contacting me, not, not necessarily from the Housing Commission Towers, but just general members of the public. These people came to our country because of our freedom and prosperity. And they were telling me that, you know, they escaped countries like, you know, Vietnam and, you know, Eastern European countries that were under communism. And they were reminded of the situations that they'd had back at home and you know this is alarming right when you get people who've escaped who've come here to escape this sort of um terror that they've faced before in their lives and they're calling my office and talking to me and my staff telling them telling us and warning us saying you know we've seen this before like that's shocking to me and i think it should be shocking to any victorian that um you know people who know about authoritarianism and have escaped it are telling us that something's wrong. And um, yeah, that's pretty shocking. 
And there's a flip side too, because there's so many people that completely still support what the Victorian government did uh, every step of the way. And I'm noticing a lot of commentary on friends of mine about this recent outbreak in New South Wales, criticising the government for not locking down harder. I mean, I've always, uh, this is the third week I've brought this up on the show, but I've always seen Australians as a larrikin nation. Please get the government out of my lives. Uh, the castle was the greatest movie ever made. And, <laughs> it is. <laughs> but, uh, but apparently that's not true. Yeah. Because the second uh, something like a virus comes across, it is uh, lock me down. Daryl Kerrigan scared. would not have supported the lockdown. Well, I'd hope. I hope. Mate, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to ask him. Yeah, but is that, uh, are you seeing that too? Like that Australians might not be as uh, untrusting of the government as we might have thought. It's clearly caused a, a large division within the community, right? So uh, there's, a, there's a number of things going on. Firstly, there's the differing impacts on different groups in society. So you see the biggest people opposing this are people who've, whose lives have been affected the most. So small business people, parents, um, people who are terrified because they've escaped authoritarianism before. These are the people that are the loudest voices. If you see, like, you know, the, the resistance against what the government was doing, it was being led by, you know, uh, restaurateurs and, um, you know, mowing contractors and people like this who whose businesses are being destroyed. But then on the other hand, you've got, you know, politicians, public servants... You know, lots of other groups like this who, you know, they're still getting their paychecks. You know, maybe they have to work from home or something. But the effects are nowhere near as as great. So you've got this division in the effects. But you've also got um, people that take the government's propaganda. Like the government is saying, well, it's proportionate because it works, which doesn't hold up to any sort of uh, logic whatsoever. You know, and I asked this to the chief health officer during the public 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 accounts and estimates committee hearings was well why didn't you go harder like why didn't we do what china did and start welding doors shut you know like there's always more uh restrictive uh measures that they could have taken that are more uh restrictive of human rights how do we know that the measures that the government has taken are the least restrictive of rights we shouldn't measure the government's response or judge the government's response on whether it succeeded in stopping the virus or not we have to measure it in a free society. We have to measure it by whether they took the least restrictive response necessary to control whatever they were trying to control. And I'm not convinced they did that. Just before you ask your next question, Pete, can you not uh, go around the government saying, can you, what, how about welding doors shut? Because I just don't want them to get any ideas for the third wave. I was a bit worried about that yeah, when I just, said they'd it. They'd be like, oh, yeah, true. All right, sounds good. Yeah, well, yeah. they almost did that in the housing exactly. flats. I mean, you know, they confine people to their apartments you know some of them weren't getting fresh air for for ages mm. so i mean yeah yeah you, you do hear that you think um well we were successful in dealing with covid it's like well we were successful in dealing with covid in terms of covid numbers compared to other places in the world but there's lots of other things as well that uh we like you were a big island yeah yeah <laughs> big island but uh so what i've got an interesting question for you now you are our hero of the year Mm. Um, I hope it's interesting. I just call my own question interesting then. We'll see how we go. Uh, you're my hero of the year. Now, my villain of the year is a, a colleague of yours, Dan Andrews. Right. Now, you strike me as someone who's fairly even-handed, um, more interested in policy than going the man. Um, I feel like a lot of hatred has been distilled through this guy. You know, like everything's going wrong. We're going to blame this guy as much as I made him villain of the year. What do you? What's your view of him? Is he just a, like a politician? He's just a labour numbers man. Is he really bad? What do you think? Interesting question. Thanks, mate. That I, is an interesting I hoped question. It was interesting when I started. I think, like, I think he's he's 
he's genuine in as much as he thinks he's doing the right thing, right? I'm, I, I don't think that there's some sort of phony facade here that, like, you know, he feels that he's doing what it, what needs to be done to to control things. I think what's clear is that there's a very different worldview between, and maybe it's good in a way that we've exposed this worldview. There's this view within his mind, and I think within the mind of the people in his party, that, you know, the greater good, you know, we've heard this all before, you know, whatever it needs to take, it doesn't matter, we can take these actions as long as it's for the greater good. Whereas people like me will be like, well, no, we have to think about individual rights as well. Um, we can't we can't do things that are going to uh, impact on human rights so much. But, I mean, they've just had this thing, you know, we're, we're saving lives and therefore any action is... Uh, justified. This isn't the first time that we've come up with this sort of conflict. I mean, if you look at the uh, the one that I've brought up a few times is the government's uh, road safety campaign. You know, towards zero, they have this idea that you know they can somehow through the magic of government power they can somehow eliminate the risk of driving on the road and so they take more and more and more extreme actions you know speed cameras and more rules and lowering speed limits and all these things to move towards this goal of you know towards zero and they justify it by saying well we don't want anyone to die on the roads which you know no one wants anyone to die on the roads but we have to accept that there's things that we do in life where there's risk and people should be allowed to uh understand and manage that risk in their life and there's always trade-offs you, you know to, to live a risk-free life is to not really live a life at all yeah uh, and this is something that's really coming out of COVID for me is that the, the poll numbers are so crazy good for every premier right now even dan andrews is overseeing a disastrous second wave if he had, if the election was tomorrow he'd walk away with it easy and i just worry that there's this incentive to just go okay next time problems arise if I take the big tough stance and even if it really affects people's lives, uh, I, I, it's going to work out well for me. Like I, I worry about the future of human rights and individual liberty because this year was a big, the tougher you go, the better it is for you in a re-election. I totally agree. I'm really worried about the precedent that this sets. I'm worried, you know, are we going to have every flu season? Are we going to declare a state of emergency? I mean, is this where we're going? Because, you know, lots of people die from the flu every single year, mm. right? And... Uh, lots of other diseases and you know if there's people in in the public health and people that politicians that listen to them that say well you know if we had a lockdown for a few weeks a year we could shut down the flu season or you know we could save lives you know why do you want people to die you know just suppress these rights and so I, I'm worried yeah I, I I'm worried about the precedent that it sets but I'll, I'll temper that by saying this is nowhere near over we're in this strange limbo land at the moment this virus is running wild in the rest of the world. Whether we actually did anything good here still remains to be seen. So we've we've slowed down the the spread of the virus within Victoria, but if they can't get uh, a vaccine uh, widely distributed and produced and distributed within a reasonable time frame and convince people that it is safe and effective and it actually be safe and effective, what we've done isn't actually very good at all all we've done is delay what's happening in the rest of the world at great cost so i you know this thing isn't isn't over yet and i'm i was asking a lot in uh payak last week about the the timelines that they're using for the budget estimates you know because they have to take into these uh, uh, estimates when they think 
you know, when they think a vaccine will be widely available, when they think the state of emergency will end, when they think international tourism will come back. And I'm very skeptical about these timelines. Like, you know, when they're talking about, you know, having a vaccine rollout by March next year, like this is a massive, massive supply and distribution problem. Like, well, uh, also, seven days ago, if I told you the borders to New South Wales would be closed with every other state, you would be like, you know, you, well, you couldn't even doubt it because, like, that's the world we live in. But who's to say that there's not going to be a third wave in Victoria? Like, I don't know how you could also forecast that. Yeah, I mean, well, we're, we're totally putting our faith that they can manage this quarantine of people coming back, that can, we can manage the the borders, that somehow... Um, and, and that the, the disease doesn't, you know, somehow mutate and... You know, God, there's so many variables here that uh, I think to make a judgment that, you know, they've actually done something good is far too premature. So I think we need to put these in a, in a bit of perspective here. Um, they, of course, you know, they'll take whatever credit they can take for, um, you know, slowing things down and they have slowed it down. But like I said, you shouldn't judge something by whether it's successful in slowing down the spread of the virus. You should judge thing in judge it in its total impact on society you know what's the what's been the cost here like in terms of you know harm other harms caused to people other diseases caused to people harms to children i mean you know mental trauma i mean mental health issues are going through the roof at the moment like you know i asked about this at payac as well you know like um acute mental health episodes on public transport you know i've witnessed you know a couple in the last few weeks myself but I, everyone's reporting this sort of stuff and i'm saying well what are you doing about this sort of thing you know people are having so many issues at the moment it's just not natural to lock people in their homes for so long and it's it's having all sorts of effects and i'm really worried about the long-term effects of of this on children like taking them out of school and i said the other day like if they try and shut down the schools again like it's just going to be on i think like they can't do it that's exactly what i'm waiting for like this bjorn lomborg style he seems like the kind of guy that does it just to really evaluate the cost of every strategy just so it's really obvious which is the best one and what you know if it panned out or not now on the on the school children mm. thing we wanted to ask you about that because um it's an issue that you spoke about a lot and you're really mm. passionate about saying that kids should be in school um, and you sort of mentioned a little bit there, but what? And, and you said, you know, it's going to be on if if it, it, they are taken out of school again. What have you made of the school-aged children's experiences in lockdown? I think it's been horrific for a lot of kids. Um, some of the kids dealt with it quite well, but um, it sort of depends on their personality type. But I, I think the health impacts are, uh, you know, forgetting even mental health and educational impacts. The health impacts. You think about the activity that kids do every day. They go running around at lunchtime with their mates. They walk to and from school, a lot of them. They go to sports in the evening. They do karate. They, they go and muck around with their friends on the weekend. Massive amounts of physical activity that they're doing. Then that was all shut down. They were, they were locked in front of their screen. You know, I, We used to limit screen time. Now all time is screen time. And they get an hour exercise in their prison yard every day right you know they can go for a walk or something but that just doesn't cut it at all so i think that the parents are becoming aware of some of the problems that this has caused for their kids both educational health and mental health issues and once that becomes more widely understood the idea of sacrificing children's welfare uh, in order to stop this disease transmission will become totally people will realize that it's totally unconscionable uh, we are getting pretty doom and gloom, and I guess uh, yeah, the experience yeah. of 2020 here would uh, necessitate that. But what are things that are making you a bit more 
like positive about the future of liberty? Like, is there anything that you saw this year that makes you go, okay, maybe the Australian public are becoming more uh, interested in the ideas of individual liberty and more hopeful for the future? Yeah, look, I mean, I'm, I'm still very optimistic about the future, so don't take my doom and gloom tone to think that I'm not. I think um, we gave you the doom and gloom. Yeah, you gave <laughs> me a lot the doom of leading and gloom. questions <laughs> towards doom and gloom. I wouldn't bother. Tell me about Dan Andrews. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't bother being uh, in politics if I wasn't optimistic. But I think there's a, there's a few really good things that we've got going for us in the future. So one is it's always been my view that the people who uh, value their rights and freedoms the most are people who've lost them. All right. This is this is why, you know, when you talk to refugees and people like this, they value and cherish the freedoms that we have in Australia so much. It's why we put people in prison, you know, because when they we take away their liberty so that they appreciate it more. Like so now we've, we're in a situation where, to some degree, everyone has had their freedom taken away, and I think everyone will uh, cherish it a lot more than they used to. They're more acutely aware of it when it's taken away. The other point, which I think is a very new thing is I've never seen so many people never involved and never engaged in politics just suddenly become engaged. The types of people that were contacting politicians during the state of emergency and the omnibus bill and some of these other bills that have been coming through, these are not uh, old activist groups who've been around for years. They're not lobby groups. They're not think tanks. They're not any of that. These are often just like everyday people or people who've become activists um, started creating content and doing whatever they can to show that they're affected by these these whole bunch of people that are engaged in politics now that were totally disengaged from it before. Uh, I think that's a good thing. I think the more people that um, pay attention to what's going on in Parliament and what governments are actually doing, especially when it comes when it's in, with regards to their rights, I think that's a, that can only be a good thing. Interesting, David. Now, what do you think? the big battles for freedom will be in 2021 and beyond the big, the big important issues state of emergency extension uh that's easily number one so the government will i'm quite convinced that I mean, the, they've said to me already that uh they need the state of emergency the emergency powers to run quarantine and they expect quarantine to run until at least the end of next year so that means they have to extend the state of emergency and that will end in march so that will require new legislation uh, so that's going to happen. Um, I think that's going to be our biggest battle that we're going to see, you know, around March, whenever they want to introduce it. Hopefully they won't introduce it right at the end of March like they <laughs> did last time they tried to extend it. But um, I think that's going to be our first one. I think the second one's going to be around uh, the public health messaging and the public health campaign. There's a lot of people concerned about the idea of these vaccines, they're worried about them, you know, the, that whether they've been tested or, and, or, you know, whether they're safe and effective. People are concerned about that. I think the government in lots of ways have sh has shot themselves in the foot on this because they've relied so heavily on anyone that's questioned the, the government. They've demonised them. And now people are asking quite legitimate questions about um, medical products and they can't just demonise these people, right? They have to totally change their messaging here and they have to get people to trust public health officials who haven't been releasing their human rights charter assessments. They haven't been releasing the evidence they've been using to make their decisions. I think it's going to be very difficult for people to trust these uh, public health officials, which I think is a really bad thing. Like, I want them, if there is a safe and effective treatment or preventative uh, medicine for this, I want people to understand that and, and uh, you know, 
take it as long as it's not mandatory. If if it's you know safe and effective, then people should understand the risks and benefits and be able to make good decisions. But I think that the messaging has been stuffed up, basically. Yeah. All right. Well, 2020 was a very grim year for freedom, but we're glad to have people like you out there. David Limbrick, Hero of the Year for Freedom. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Dan. Okay, thank you too, David Limbrick. Great to chat with him, as always. Hero of the Year. Uh, couldn't think of a more deserving winner. Let's fly through some stories and uh, then yeah. we'll talk about last show. But we want to start off with the fun stuff. Parasitic Hall, Pete, yeah, they got fined. Well, this is always... It's a bit of a diversity and uh, mashup here. There's three very, like, uh, you know, yeah. diversity stories. This but, is this is the theme this week. Yeah, it's a diversity theme. It's our diversity show. Um, the thing that always... So one of the things I always say about... Uh, gender equality rights. So people go, yeah, that should be 50-50. I'm like, well, I don't care if 100% of political leaders are women. Whereas based on your thing, you would be telling women when it gets above 50% to ship off. And that's exactly what's happened in Paris City Hall, James, not exactly, but something like that. Um, They got fined 90,000 euros, which is a lot of money, because there's a law which says that in, uh, in in French municipal governments, there has to be no less than 40% of either gender and unfortunately there was 11 women and only five men were named to management positions in city hall in 2018 which means that 69 percent of the appointments went to women now paris mayor socialist Anne hildego said we must speed up the tempo and ensure that more women are appointed are appointed than men so uh paris mayor socialist Anne hildego saying the loud bit no what is it the soft bit loud there yeah. uh so she's just one of those feminists that like men and women are equal but also women are a little bit better so I liked that because that's one of the things that I've always talked about. You know, the Queensland cabinet has more women than men based on your gender equality ideas. That means they should be shipped off. Well, then, I shipped off is a fun phrase that Pete's really pushing here. Shipped off. Uh, so I want a same principle yeah. over to the ABC. So uh, the Australian diary section obtained an inter- urgent internal memo from <laughs> one of the ABC's most senior news executives, Gavin Fang, which put down a hard deadline for the ABC to reach a 50% gender diversity quota it had fallen behind on. So they wanted 50-50. They're coming up to what, like eight days to go? They're not going to get there. They're, well, maybe like when this document was a bit earlier. But the problem, the thing is, it's in December. They're not going to get nah. there. Panic stations. If mm. they don't get 50-50, that's not good. So what they did was they started a challenge to achieve our gender diversity goals with 11 weeks ago. So it is a bit odd. Uh, We're sitting at 47%. So we're kicking off a 10-week challenge to refocus your team on the effort and even included as an extra bit of a motivation, quote, there will be prizes awarded for the best overall result, most improved, the best 50-50 story and the best champion. Now, the idea that like uh, to get to the 50-50 that some people might feel tokens and might not be (laughs) like uh, the most respected journalist in their field talking about a story, but just like, well, we needed this particular demographic Mm. and you were the first one we called. How do you think that's going to go down with them? Because, like, literally, we need, we just need tokens. Like, I don't care who they are. I don't care what their background is. Yeah. But I want to get to 50-50 because my executive pay rise it depends on me getting that 50-50. So get out there and get me some diversity. That would make the new employees feel very special. Exactly. Um, I, As you sort of briefly mentioned there, there is the accusation, and this is not my accusation, don't sue me, ABC, that there are executive bonuses connected to this and a few executives are thinking I could do with a bit of a bonus despite getting a pay rise during the year like all the other ABC employees. Uh, and the thing I like the most, James, is that they talked about there being prizes for those who made the best progress on this stuff and those prizes included pizzas. So... That's what gender equality is worth to the ABC. Mm. More women in the workplace is worth 
a pizza. I hope it was a good pizza. Mm-hmm. I hope it wasn't like a Domino's or something crap like that. Yeah, or the um, you know the COVID pizza that sent South Australia. To yeah, I hope it's not the COVID pizza. Yeah. Can Domino's sue me for saying they're crap? I don't. I don't think uh, that Domino's is crap. Um, well, you just covered your bases, so <laughs> let's move on and get out of here. Uh, yeah. All right, so final story. We're going uh, good. This is an article that went pretty viral from The Nation, yeah. which is a US website. Uh, an article talking about, okay, it's it's a weird topic and it was definitely going to come up eventually, but the idea that yeah. like uh, the stat that's brought around was that black Americans used to be considered three-fifths of a citizen in the US. This has taken that principle to say, okay, so to make up for that today, black Americans, their vote should count twice mm. in an election which is not what racism gets solved by doing. That's not the thing, is it? That's not what we're trying to do. That's sort of doing what we used to do. Yeah, just like, uh, you know, what, what's the meme of the two uh, shaking hands and then like the, the statement they agree on at the top? But picture that in your head, if you will. One arm, segregationist in the 1930s Alabama, and then the other arm, the work movement today. You're like just agreeing on the fact that your race should determine your voting worth. Mm. That's that, like, they'd be like, this sounds amazing. Exactly right. I think that this comes back to the same thing that, I mean, a lot of the reparations movement can be dealt with by just what your mum used to tell you when you hit your brother and she would say i never did because he hit you first Mm. and she would say two wrongs don't make a right well so a lot of it can be summed up with that but this fella brandon hasbrauk assistant professor at washington lee university school of law uh wrote that yeah as as you said um i think this is a slight variation of my normal theme of it's easy being a lefty because normally lefties just go there's a problem i don't like we should get the government to put money towards it and we should tax rich people to pay for it but this is like there's a problem i don't like i.e if you read his article it's basically that trump almost won the election um that means we have to end a democracy mm. so i just think it's easy being a lefty we have to think think about things like how things will play out in the future um things like freedoms mm. it is more difficult being us yes you know now it's the last episode i feel like we I definitely make it look hard that's <laughs> for sure <laughs> we, particularly us two yeah we yeah. really labor through it yeah so um no this is just one of those how easy it being a lefty you just pick something and that's it there we go all right so as we said uh quite emotional uh but it is the last episode it of is. the young ipa podcast it's been a hell of a ride uh now this is interesting, and I haven't seen this so I could vet it, and I am a control freak. Mm, so I haven't seen it either, I, and I'm not a control I feel, freak. I feel naked and afraid, Ooh, but Saul Muscatel, kind of who is our producer extraordinaire, editor, does everything behind the scenes, yeah. uh, has prepared something for this occasion. What a guy. About time he prepared something. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah, sorry if you, for How's people just listening, this is just some like uh, black and white, <laughs> just yipper products oh, over Dennis the years. Oh, Look at that. Yeah. I'm a bit skinnier there. I am much better. In one legislative term oh. or more. Yeah, there's no way Pete and I are becoming better people. <laughs> no, so, I mean, you'd really yeah. have to work <laughs> on YouTube, obviously. <laughs> the least five pieces of legislation. <laughs> best was, friends uh, day to my friend Barack Obama. Not mm. best friend. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. So getting in on the hashtag, but not, didn't say best friend. It <laughs> is, a, it is a, like a weird omission mm. on, a, on best friends day to just call him your friend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Room, they say, hey, Jerry, just I can't believe hop out for it. a sec, mate. Yeah. I'm actually miserable. Yeah. <laughs> Get me out of here. Get me out of here. Uh, Let it go, Rob. Just, just, you know, don't tweet that. That's a... <laughs> okay, we've lost audio. We've we've re- do it. Steve Jobs. Oh! oh come on, Rexy! Yes, Rexy! Oh, that's why well I have to respect. Yo, I'd say that. Oh, yeah. That's squeak. That's squawk. Uh, this is us visiting Grunt the Pig. Oh, there he is. Very good memory. Poor old Grunt. I hope he's going, away, going okay through lockdown. Ha, 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 ha.
Oh, thank you, Saul. That's Great really stuff. nice. Beautiful. Uh, so, yeah, if you are listening, um, I mean, Saul put a lot of work into that. That was really beautiful. If you are listening, head to the YouTube and you can check it out there and it'll probably make a bit more sense than me commentating on it. But yeah. uh, anyway, Pete, did you have anything you wanted to say? Yes, I did. I just wanted to say, you know, I never thought that talking to a microphone would appeal to me. You know, I didn't think that that would be something that I enjoy, but I absolutely loved it. It was the funnest thing I've ever done at work. James, it was your idea. I mean, when you came into my office that I shared with Bella and put it to me. So it was, it's been awesome. Thanks to everyone who's helped behind the scenes. Saul, Steve, Hugh, Nina. There's a million of them. I've started naming them. That's bad because that means I won't be able to name them all. But you know who you are. Thank you to all the guests. Thank you to the IPA. Thank you to uh, yeah, so the uh, the members and donors of the IPA who make this happen every week. All the exec team at the IPA who allow us to do it. But most of all, James, thank you to the people who listen. I find it, as I said, absolutely flabbergasted that people uh, tune in to hear us gather on every week. But apparently they do. So we hope that we did something useful. And obviously, thank you, James, as well. Oh uh, yeah, and thank you, Pete. Coming on the journey. Um, yeah, I have left this part of my notes blank because every time I try to write, it became a bit hard. Uh, sorry, freewheeling. Let's Here see how go. this one goes. Uh, anyway, um, as Pete said, yeah, like th- this podcast, we've been doing this like three or four years and when it started, I've gone since back and listened to our first couple and it's not good. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's rough. But, Imagine the pilots. But people listened to it and you kept listening to it and it got more popular and then we got to film it and then we got to go places and we got to interview uh people i never thought i'd get the chance to interview and it's because Mm. you all listened and you know my background like uh andrew bolt's son james uh, andrew bolt's son yes i i've spent my whole life seeing dad interact with his fans and i've always gone like man that would be so cool and now, I've had fans and I've interacted with them and you guys talk to me on Twitter and you talk to me on Instagram. I've met you in the flesh and uh, it's so cool <laughs> to think that I'm a part of people that I've never met's life and I'm going to miss it. And like I said, there's going to be projects next year so we get to keep going and we're all going to stay in touch and stuff like that and you can still follow me on Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. But uh, you don't know how much you guys mean to me out there. So, yeah, very cool. Very uh, nice. See you guys next year. Thank you very much. Stay up. Mm-hmm.